Leonard Cohen suggested, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. I am looking at a video and Eric is looking at a video, but we're going to talk as if we're sitting next to each other, sitting on a dock in the bay, looking out over the water. This is Eric Zebagalski. I think I got it right. We had a little how to pronounce my name lesson in the beginning of this. <laughs> yeah, A plus, Mac. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Um, <laughs> and that's a wrap. <laughs> that's a wrap. So um, tell us your story, Eric. How'd you get here? Who are you? Wow. Um, great question. I, my entire life, I have felt like a right brain person in a left brain world. And um, my life has taken me on a lot of very specific technical paths and professions. And that, that whole time, I, um, I also had this other side of me, other passionate, compelling side of me that, you know, that cared more about the... Um, the things that the right hemisphere of the brain cares about, the bigger, bigger picture, um, the relationships between things, pulling it all in, 10,000 foot landscape view. And, I, you know, I think it would, um, would probably help this story a little bit if I said that I... Um, in my early 20s, I joined the military, did 20 years in the Air Force, and then I, I was in a technical field, aviation mechanics, and then flying as a, as a crew member on a couple of different airplanes. And then I retired and I went into, I continued to look for work in defense in the aviation field, uh, supporting the Navy mostly. Um, but like I said, there was always this, this right brain side of me, um, that wanted to do more that also cared very deeply about the human side of enterprise, uh, not just the machines and the clockwork and how it all works, but how people work in those kinds of environments. So in so in tandem with what I was doing, I, I pursued those kinds of things academically. And um, I worked my way up to a doctorate degree in human and organizational learning with George Washington University. And I'm still fascinated to this day. I'm still in very technical fields, but still very interested in the, in the big picture. Um, things like neuroscience, human consciousness, how it all fits together, reality, how we process reality, and how we move through the world. I think part of my story also uh, would involve some, some abrupt uh, changes that happened to me early in life that... Um, it caused me to look for a balance in life. You know, if we use a metaphor of surfing, uh, how to how to surf that perfect wave every day, find that balance. But you know, in in life, and um, live your best and serve serve others at your best. Several things. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach you to be open and honest with people. The next thing you know, oh, I know, yeah, they're going to tell you what they heard. And in in 2019, I wrote this book called "The Rise of the Ambidextrous Organization," which is kind of a uh, part of my 
part of my life story and trying trying to find that balance and help others find that balance. Well, I've started reading it. And one of the things that happened when I started to read it, um, because one of the things I, all my experience supports is that if you just pay attention, keep your eyes and ears open, stuff shows up and stuff connects. Because like you, I think I have often felt out of step because I was always seeing connections and I was always viewing things from 10,000 feet. And you have an introduction, I believe, that's written by Mike Mark Hart, right? Right. I know him. Oh, oh, you know Mike? I worked on a project with the Naval Surface Weapons folks in Port Juanimi, California, uh, and he was part of the team that uh, worked with them. Wow, small world. You cannot make it up. You cannot make it up, man. So um, that's one thing which I, you know, which I wanted to make sure I didn't forget. And and I have only started. My toes are barely in the pool of your book, but what I've read so far um, is very resonant, like R E S O N A N T, and. Um, connective to what I think is a movement towards a, a stronger sense of humanity. Yeah. Oh, let me, let me, let me interject for just a brief second. I think that I heard somebody talking about this uh, just this morning on my morning run. It was Dr. Ian McGilchrist. Uh, who has just written a great book. He, his last book was called The Master and His Emissary. He's a neuroscientist. But he said that the, that the generalists, um, who might be a, more of a right-brain disposed, disposed person, uh, has, a, has a great regard for the specialist but not necessarily the other way around. The, <laughs> the specialist may not see um, much utility or worth in the generalist, but the generalist sees, sees great regard uh, and value in specialist. And this, to me, you know, kind of sums up that, that left brain, right brain um, tug of war that's always happening. And that uh, has been one of the things that I that I have also grappled with. Now, last thing I'll say is, I think that the master generalist, the person who is an inch deep and a mile wide, the 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 polymath, uh, the twenty first century Renaissance people, are coming back into fashion, and they're and they're needed. I think there's an undercurrent of a, a sort of call for them to, you know, step out in front. And um, to that comment you've started to make about humanity. I'm, I'm guessing that you've read uh, Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Brain. No. Because uh, he suggests that right brain people are in, in the ascendance. And I have, um, I don't see that as making a special in any way. I think it makes us unique rather than special. And if you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs, I'm a recovering T. <laughs> I, had yeah. I had some big trauma in my life. And the next time I took the Myers-Briggs, all of a sudden I was a real strong F and I was like, what? What happened? Um, oh, wow. I, I, I went to college as a math major. So I have great respect for that thing of counting and measuring and boxing. And I, I, that's important stuff. I get that. And part of why I like sailing is because I have to do both mm. to sail yeah. successfully. There's a, there's a wonderful book called Pompeii. And it's historical fiction, and it's about what it says it's about. And the chief, one, two of the two main characters, one is uh, Pliny the Elder. Oh, yeah. 
who was an early Roman scientist and was well known for his, well, at the very end of the book, as he is engulfed by the explosion of Mount Vesuvius and his last thought in the book, because he and his fellow scientists didn't predict it. And so yeah. his thought is we mistook measurement for understanding. Oh, wow. Isn't that great? Yeah. We mistook measurement for understanding. Yeah. And again, um, they had the data, but they didn't see the picture. Right, because they were focused on the data. They were focused on counting and measuring and 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 those all those kinds of things. Yeah. And that happens that happens so much in life that we and it's happening happening um, at an increasing rate that we're so um, I don't know, distracted, uh, tuned into our own thoughts that we're not, we're not living in the moment, not ex maybe we're not experiencing reality because we are, the left hemisphere of the brain has us so wrapped up in, in the models and schematics and concepts that it loves and wants to uh, rule the, rule the, their world with, but um, that's not real life. I think it's the evil twin of the scientific revolution. Mm. And, and my, my wife is a nurse practitioner and where she used to work every couple of weeks, she would get a long computer printout that said more or less uh, in the first two weeks of the month, you only saw 17.642 patients per day. And we look for 19.314. Um, and you only wrote 11 prescriptions on Tuesday and Wednesday of that week. And we prefer 17 prescriptions per day. And it, it was nowhere in it. Did, did it say, and we really appreciate the way that you talk to your patients and how after they talk to you, not, not only do they feel like they've been diagnosed correctly, but they also feel like someone's actually listened to them. Yeah. You know, that, that was like, Oh, you can't measure that. You can't assign a number to it. So it doesn't count. Right. And oh, I don't know why we're so enamored with this or why we're, why we're so easily deceived. I heard that, um, I heard that the Thomas Edison fought against AC alternating current and, um, the the theories and concepts of Nikolai Tesla because Edison couldn't figure out a way to put a pick on it to monetize it and it scared the hell out of him and he he ev he eventually did everything he could to discredit Tesla yeah um, run him into the ground and you know which is really sad so if um, if Edison was the was the scientist businessman, Tesla was the genius, the, the, the creative genius. And other than the car, uh, which one, which name would most people go? Oh, I've heard of him. Yeah, Edison. Yeah, yeah. but it's something that you just said, which I think is um, worthy of note at the very least, is that part of it may be fear mm. because and if i'm going to go into this strange new world of feelings and neuroscience and living in the moment and connections and uh wicked problems and you know all those things then at some point in that discovery i'm going to be in a place where i where I'm not going to be able to say I can assign a number to this. Therefore I can manage it. Yeah. Yeah. Very scary. And I, you know, I read, I read some thoughts like that in your book. And I also heard 
Dr. McGocrest says something interesting along those lines that that in experience was it is inherently risky and and scary <laughs> and potentially dangerous. So if we're go if we're going, this is a notion I never had before. If we're going into experiences uh, cold and blindly and um, without thought, it's probably very terrifying. We and we probably talk to people about you know camping before we go camping, or and we watch movies about camping and we read about it and we research it, and then eventually we get out in the woods. Um, but having experiences, raw, real-time experiences is probably terrifying to most people. So they would rather say, hey, left brain, can you build me some models, some schematics about this experience I'm walking into? Oh, I'm going to see Mac. My assumptions are he's going to be like this. He's going to say that. He's not going to, you know. And we're very comfortable around people that are predictable and we behave very predictably so we can comfort others. You know, if you were on an elevator and the doors open, some guy walked in with a, a beaded lampshade on his head and, you know, crazy sunglasses and, a, you know, he might scare the heck out of you and th that might be his intention. <laughs> <laughs> you might get out of the elevator. Or, right? Or you might go. This is really cool. This is really cool. This is cool. Yeah, yeah, really yeah. Cool. What's the what's the right way to behave? Oh, cool. <laughs> Something interesting is going to happen. Yeah, and maybe even. And I, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, um, as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> maybe. Maybe part of it is that um, a lot of people think that curiosity is something that you're supposed to leave behind when you grow up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and curiosity is, uh, as an adult, curiosity is seen as um, foolish, maybe irresponsible, assigned to simplicity or... Maybe because little kids ask questions like, you know, why is why is there a mole on your face or something? <laughs> you know, oh, that's something a kid would do. You know, why do you keep uh, touching your ear every time you talk? Well, adult wouldn't ask another adult such a question. I think you're you may be on to, to something else too. Is is that we get it? And I'm using this as a metaphor. I hope, but we get it beaten out of us. Yeah, we get it beaten out of us. And 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 Mike Marquardt says that too. You know, before I forget, and this might be in your book, um, I, I, I haven't come across it yet, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it is in your book. Uh, Buckminster Fuller, said, the uh, futurist inventor said, Everyone is born a genius, and the but the act of living degeniuses us. Yeah, William Wordsworth, right? Our our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. Mm. The, the, the child is father to the man. Wow. Mike Mike Marquardt said that you know he's the American father of action learning. Right. And I'm on I'm on the board of directors for Wild USA, and I'm also an action learning coach. Uh, but Mike brought it to the United States. Um, fascinating story of the guy Reg Revens, who he got permission from to bring it to the U.S. But action learning is all focused around around questions, asking questions. And Mike said that the first thing a child uh, learns to do from basic survival is to walk and to talk. Those are the first two things that, that, that we are compelled to do. And it's very deep in our, in our psyche um, um, evolutionarily. And he said that the children ask, ask questions incessantly. Um, 
but eventually they're told to shut up. Stop asking so many questions. Oh, I, <laughs> it's awful. You know, I mean, I, I just felt this frisson of, of discomfort when you, when you said that, because said what? It, when you said that, that, that they're told to stop asking questions. Yeah. Stop asking so many questions. You're driving me crazy. When you mentioned Buck, Buck, Buckminster Fuller, um, I've been to, I was, I got to be, go to his home at Southern Illinois University, his dome. Oh man. Home. Cool. And when I graduated from graduate school, there were two speakers, William F. Buckley and Buckminster Fuller. Wow. I know it was great. And William F. Buckley was mesmerizing. And when he got done, I felt great, but I couldn't remember a single thing he said because he was so slick and smooth and such a speaker. But Mr. Fuller got up there and he got his notes in the wrong order and stuff. And he was going all over the place and he, he kind of garbled his words a little bit and stuff. But when he was done, I was I was transformed. I was changed. My my thinking had changed. Really? Do you remember how you were changed or what it was that I had I had a sense of the um, application of cognition as a as a useful tool, not the necessary tool, but as a useful tool for being alive, not just for math, not just for calculation, not just for functions. In, I was a math major, but as a as a useful explore, exploratory way of being. Hmm. So yeah. you, so you saw a new, new purpose or utility in, in your, um, in the, in your, in your gifts or your, your human. Yeah, um, it, it was about maybe if, if I if I had to boil it down, um, it was about capacity. It was about our I mean, we have this extraordinary thing up here, you know, Oh yeah, which has capacity, which we 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 seldom use to its fullest because we're too busy, maybe measuring things. <laughs> but but. You know, Buckminster Fuller was like Star Trek, you know, to boldly go. And so he was all about let your brain go. Let your brain do what it's good, really, 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 really good at, which is symbolic thinking and systemic thinking. And what does a geodesic dome have to do with ant behavior or, you know, it's like, let your brain, because our, our human brains are really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is so, um, it's so marginalized and, and, and almost, um, well, it's certainly discouraged and it's not seen as, uh, being of great value. People who, think or act or, or, or talk that way. Again, if you can't monetize it, you know, it's of little value or it's foolish or it's waste, a uh, waste of time. Uh, but really I think you're, I think you're onto something and he was onto something. The brain is, is a creation machine. All it does is create, it creates scenarios, great works of art, um, expressions, thoughts, songs, poems, yeah. and, you know, all the, all the, the only purpose of the brain is to create and that which we create comes back around to govern, monitor and regulate us. Yeah. And I think it's lonely up there. I think it's lonely up there too. Yeah. And you know, um, right, because um, consciousness 
I think is nothing more than self-awareness. You're aware of your own awareness. And so you create all these feedback loops. Um, so the only thing the brain is, is aware. And the only thing that it does is, is create. Which it, which it can do very well. And it can also do very dysfunctionally, very dysfunctionally. Yeah. Because it can, it can also create addiction and it can also create hatred. And it, 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 you know, we could, we could do the list and we'd be here. And I think we have more, more to say about that than we give ourselves credit for. You know, one of my one of my least favorite things, and I haven't been saying it for a long time because it makes me so squirrely to hear it, is oh that's just the way I am. Mm. You know, yeah. you know, it's like have you ever thought of maybe learning how to like write a novel or play a musical instrument or take a class in watercolor or you know it's like oh no I'm just not creative. And yeah. I, would, I would have slap them, Eric. I really do want to slap them. Yeah, and I would, I, I would, um, I would want to tell them to find that person that's telling them that in their head and and slap that person, put Kick a gag, you know, put Kick a gag on them. Um, because the, it's really true. You you. You know, we do create our own walls, our own prisons, um, comfortable prisons or labyrinths that we walk through. We follow familiar paths. Um, I really liked what you said. I had a little bit of a Buckminster Fuller moment like yours. <laughs> When you talked about on page 33 about how the human brain can store 280 quadrillion quintil, quintillion uh, bits of memory. And that's like 35 billion gigabytes. So we may have trouble retrieving that information, but we don't have trouble restoring it. That, or we, we don't have trouble storing it. So when I read that, it was only for a brief second <laughs> I felt this uplifting kind of freeing feeling like, like, holy shit. I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to be a genius now because I've just realized, you know, the hangar doors have opened and I've seen how immense this storeroom is. I can pack a lot more shit in here <laughs> than I've been allowing myself to store. Um, and I want to hang on. I want to hang on to that feeling and that thought because the brain, the human brain, really is an amazing thing, and we oh. we we really are a, a rare uh, species that is is cobbling itself, probably like you said, probably out of fear, right. and. and or that struggle between the hemispheres of the brain, you know, the 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 left and right. I think is I think both of those are part of it. Uh, there's a there's a guy named David Kelly. He's from Stanford, and he has a video called um, "Creative Self Confidence." I think it's a I think it's a TED Talk, and he talks about that all of us. And I remembered as soon as I, the first time I saw the video was for a, a, a class I was going to do, I was going to teach about creativity. And, and he told a story about a little kid in art class in second grade. And the teacher comes up behind the little kid and says, that doesn't look anything like an elephant. And that's all it takes for us to go. And I remember a teacher saying to me, and I assume she was a wonderful person. I don't know. I was making something out of a, out of clay. It was supposed to be a dinosaur or something. And I remember her saying that doesn't look 
anything like a dinosaur. And I remember that I could, it was just, there's a, there, there's a, and thank you for this. I mean, all of this, but there's a wonderful story. This is my favorite children and art story. It's a first grade class and it's free drawing time, which means you can draw anything you want. It's my favorite thing, anything you want. And there's a little girl in the back of the class who's drawn a way to beat the band. She is just having a party back there. So, so the, the teacher goes back and says, wow, well, what are you drawing, honey? And the little girl looks up, her and she, looks up at her and she says, I'm drawing God. Mm. And the teacher says, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the little girl looks back at her and she says, they will in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There it oh, is. I love that. Isn't that great? Yeah, that is great. So, so I want to, I want to tell a story too in a second, but to finish up your thought with a question, how do we reignite that? How do we make, how do we make that uh, permissible again? How do we bring that out into the world and say, you know, hey, um, let's, you know, let's bring out the, the, the kindergarten. Let's bring the kindergartners back out for a minute. Um, and we make that cool. Um, I remember us hearing about a study years ago. You probably heard of it. That was... Um, testing people for genius level um, IQ. And they, and this was a longitudinal study. So they tested uh, people well up into their um, adult years. Um, well, no, it, it wasn't a longitudinal study. They, they tested every demographic, every type of uh, group of people. Mm -hmm. um, what, what demographic do you think tested the highest for, for genius level um, IQ? Ooh. They, were, they were kindergartners. And as they... And, and when they tested them later as they grew up. Oh, no, now, I know where this is going. Oh. Yeah, that Buckminster Fuller um, prediction came true. You know, the, 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 the genius got kind of pushed out of them. Uh, but all the, but the kindergartners were in the 98th percentile for, for genius level IQ. What are we afraid of? What are what are what are we adults afraid of? I mean, kids are smarter than than we are. I've never doubted that. I've never doubted that, especially little kids. Why do you think they're smarter? Because, and this is short answer, which is dangerous, but it's I think <laughs> because they have not yet been crushed. Mm. They have not had their curiosity and imaginations crushed. And, 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 you know, I mean, we learn most of what, of what makes us by the time we're like five or six. I mean, right. That, that's where most of our temperament, you know, back to, back to Carl Jung and, and David Kiersey and stuff. That's, that's when most of that gets put into place. And because I think, because we are such sponges then, Right. I mean, I've I, and I still do this. I remember kids who would sit there and watch ants back to ants for some reason for like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> right? They would just like uh, what's his name? Uh, E.O. Wilson. Right. Um, he was a, he was big into ants and he's also a fascinating guy. But all it takes, excuse me. Every every marking period when I was a kid, every, every card, every, you know, grades, whenever I brought home my grades, the box was always checked that I did not work up to my capacity. Mm. Wow. And 
when we're that age, especially because we don't have any armor yet, you know, we don't, we just don't have any armor on. We take that to heart. And I thought that that meant there was something wrong with me. Yeah. What it was is, and thank God when I was a little boy, they did not have the ADD and ADHD diagnosis because I would have been drugged up to, to beat the van. <laughs> <laughs> because I always, I was always, you know, going, oh, 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 oh. Yeah. You know, and I learned how to write cursive and, you know, remember those little things that had dark lines and then yeah. lines where you had to write your letters. I learned how to do that stuff and that's okay. I get that. But what I was best at was when the a teacher just kind of said, all right, if you were going to write a play about evil, write down what the bad person would be like. Mm. Oh, I'd be like, oh, oh, oh boy. <laughs> right. Because, yeah. that, you know, and I can do the other stuff. I've been a yacht charter captain, so I know how to, you know, do all the safety stuff and change the oil and fix an engine. I get all those linear things. I've been a carpenter. I know to measure twice and cut once. I get those things. Those yeah. for me are tools that support my search for that's powered by curiosity and discovery. Mm. Wow. Yeah, I like that. I wonder how we can... Um... I wonder how we can try to figure out what what it is that is are holding people back. Um, boy, if we could figure that out and teach uh, teach people about it, wouldn't that be something? Yeah, you know, I would I would love. I mean, I think that's what I do anyhow in my <laughs> own small world. I mean. I, I do a lot of work about leadership um, and I am always planting this seed. I am always, because what I discovered is that in my, in the sessions, classes, whatever you want to call them, they aren't like a normal class at all. I have of the, of the, I figured out the other day between 50 and 70,000 people I've worked with doing what I do. Eric, I bet, I've run into a hundred and, and you can do that math. That's a teeny percentage who given the opportunity for, and I make the context of what I do. So it's a safe place. There are no right or wrong answers. Questions count more than answers. I'm open, push back. I'm not the boss here. I just walk around more than the rest of you. I have never met somebody with those few exceptions who given that opportunity wouldn't go back to their kindergarten, wouldn't go, Oh, I never thought of it that way. Well, what would you think if instead of the boss getting the best parking space, the brand new employee gets the best parking space? Ooh, what if we all got the corner office one week out of the year? Not, you know, yeah. Ooh, what if, what if, at, at, and you know, I, I have this vision of all these, all these brains out there, what 7.5 billion of them or however brains there are on the planet, all of them are like, please, 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 just let me, let, please, please, just let me create and think and let me, please. Can I just, yeah, can I just, you know, stay outside after the street lights come on, please, I'll be good. <laughs> um. <laughs> Well, there, you know, there are things happening all the time, and there are examples of 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 creative moments and divergence that that gets through learning that's allowed. Um, and I think that if it's um, if it ever catches fire, you know. It sparks and a flame comes up, but if that flame turns into a brush fire and catches fire, then maybe there's no holding us back. You know, the country of Bhutan, which is, um, I think it's between China and um, you know, Mongolia or Tibet. Yeah, Mongolia. They don't. They don't have a GDP. They don't 
measure their country's prosperity with a gross domestic product. You know, how, how many widgets are we creating? How much agriculture do this or do that? Okay, that's how, you know, we aggregate that and that's how prosperous our country is. Bhutan has something called GBH, gross domestic happiness. <laughs> and they, every census that they take five years or 10 years, they go around and they interview each citizen of the country about their life and quality of life and how happy they are. And then they crunch all of that into a GDH and they say, we are very prosperous. Look at our, our, our GDH measurements and scale. You know, why, why can't we, why can't we do something like that every other year? Why does it always have to be how much are you producing? How many physical, material, tangible things are you creating? How much, you know, if we did a survey, if we did a, a GDH survey of the whole country and did it uh, right, um, we might learn something about our real prosperity. And part of what I really like about that is it's still a measurement. Which it's means a measurement, it's right. Still so, a measurement. So yeah. all, all the left brain, you know, analytical people still have that, right? Still have that anchor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They get there. They get that validation. They get that, you know, objectivity. Um, we are scientifically measuring something. We're just measuring something on the right side. <laughs> very sneaky very sneaky well, indeed when i was um when i was a kid i grew up in san diego california part of my life i'm a native washingtonian i was born in dc but i from the age of about five years old until i was a teenager i lived in san diego and we lived um right on the edge of la jolla mm-hmm and my parents had a friend who lived in La Jolla um, near the La Jolla Cove on a mountain called Mount Soledad, which has a big white cross on top of the mountain. Um, La Jolla is a beautiful town in San Diego. And he, he was a doctor and we would, my parents got invited to his house every year for a party. And I really liked these parties. Uh, I probably attended his parties from the age of nine, nine, 10, 11 years old. Mm -hmm. I was there. And what I liked about his parties were he let me sit in his den while the party was going on. He had a really cool den with one of those big leather uh, office chairs with the brass uh, tacks that were hammered in to the leather kind of a kind of a red leather chair it was well oiled it spun very well i would i would spin around in the chair <laughs> in his den and i would look out this gigantic picture window over the pacific ocean he commanded a beautiful view of the pacific and the la jolla cove and the town below and um <clears throat> waiters would come through with chafing dishes with a little midget hot dogs wrapped in pastry and i would scoop some of those off onto my plate i would spin around in the chair look out the window and i look at all the cool stuff in his den um i wasn't interested in mingling with any of the adults or hanging out at the party so i really looked forward to that and i liked it well he wrote um he wrote children's books and every year my parents would try to get me to take one of his children's books. They, they'd say, Eric, he'll, he'll sign it for you. Uh, don't you want one of his books? And I, you know, I was either too scared or polite or didn't have the words to say, hell no, with extreme prejudice, I do not want one of his books because I considered them to be baby books, you know, nursery rhymes. And I did not want to be caught dead with one of those books in my bedroom when my buddies came over with the skateboards, baseball mitts, bicycles. Yeah. We were into, you know, all the cool things. 
Well, that guy was Theodore Geisel. It was Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss. Wow. <laughs> and I, you know, to me, his books were his books were baby books. Um, they were for children, and I, you know, if I liked them, I didn't publicly, I wouldn't publicly admit it. So even at that young age, I had already been acculturated and sort of had that scared out of me. You know, here was this wonderfully sweet, creative guy, uh, always had a kind word for me and would spend a few moments talking to me that I was like, I don't, you know, where's the chafing dish with the hot dogs and can I sit in your den? <laughs> pigs in a blanket, right? Yeah, pigs in a blanket. Pigs in a yeah. blanket. Well, it sounds like Dr. Seuss was a lot like Mr. Rogers. He was the real deal. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you have kids? Yeah, I do. Um, Mr. Rogers once said that the, um, oh, there's a quote from Mr. Rogers. I put it in my book. Um, oh, I can't remember it now. It'll come back to me. Let's talk about something else. Do I? Yeah, I have two kids. I have a boy and a girl, um, tw uh, 25 and 30. All right. I will get to them in a second. Okay. Um, I think that what we have been talking about, which is maybe evolutionary, revolutionary, right, wrong, or otherwise, but I think it's important and I think it's real and I think it's good as opposed to evil. Um, this time in which we find ourselves these past couple of years and all this that's happening politically and economically and culturally and with the weather and the environment and disease and all these things, which seem to have all descended at the same time without being a Pollyanna about it. I think that, you know, you and I were, have been talking about what can we do about this? And this may be a good time for us you and me, and, and for people in general, to start to move this evaluation mindset and to, and to start to go, being childlike is not stupid, being childish maybe, but being childlike is actually not just okay, it's actually good, it's, it's, a, it's good. Yeah, it could be the key to our survival. I boy, I think you're right there. I think you know. Right yeah. So Fred Rogers said, "The worst thing you can do to another person is diminish them." And we do that. We do that every day. Um, oftentimes, it's not mean spirited. We don't mean to do it, or we do it because others do it to us, or we do it to ourselves, or that's how we see that's the frame that we see the world, but, but how often do we diminish others and just don't even realize it? I, you know, uh, mirror neurons in the brain cause us to mimic one another. If you see, if you witness a kind act between two people, you're standing in a park and you see somebody uh, conduct an act of kindness with another person, it can make you tear up and cry because you've seen that. Yeah, you get you get a, a shot of oxytocin just like the person yeah. kindness, right? Right. And those mirror neurons cause us to to mimic one another. So so that makes us uh, very powerful, very dangerous. And very, um, very powerful. Well, and maybe that is something you and I down the line can talk about as one of the ways we can, um, we can capture this better. You know, people, people, and we, as far as I know, you and I qualify as a people too. Um, <laughs> 
we do better with with sticky ideas, right? Ideas which which like once once we hear them and once they're once we hear the story of them, they stay with us, like yeah. Hansel and Gretel or Goldilocks and the Three Bears or you know those yeah. are the stories. So maybe to think about a story about the mirror neuron as a as an idea and maybe this is a good time to be doing it i mean i i and i, I don't claim either sainthood or approaching sainthood <laughs> but one of the things i do is i always pick up two pieces of trash every day and put them in the trash can and that's cool yeah when you're out walking around when am I walking around now? Yes. Some people go like, "Well, that's not your trash." I'm, I don't, I'm like, "Well, if if I walk by it, it is. As soon as I walk, as soon as I leave it behind, is my trash." Yeah. Everything that you, yeah, the only thing the brain is is aware. The only thing yeah. it's aware of is itself. Yeah. And it's a creation machine, and everything that you create comes back to govern, monitor, and regulate you. Yeah. So if you look at that trash. That trash is in your world. You got. What are you going to do about a world of trash or a trash trash right in front of you? More and more, when I do that, our people go, "That's cool." Yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah. And th they don't say, "Well, that's not going to solve a little problem," or "You'll never make a difference." It's just like, oh. That's cool. So maybe this is a good time for us to be able to say, oh, that's cool. Yeah, maybe that's one of the things to, you know, put in the bag of tricks to, uh, <laughs> to turn around and teach someday. You know, I read one of the coolest books I ever read was a book called Moonwalking with Einstein by Joshua Ford name spelled F-O-E-R. And Joshua Four was a young tech writer. He wrote for a tech magazine. And he was asked to go cover the national memory competition happening in the United States every year. Wow. Um, and so he went to, um, to write a op-ed piece or, you know, write an article uh, for the tech magazine about this national memory championship. And he um, expected all of these competitors to be geniuses, you know, Mensa um, honorees and, and very high IQs and things like that. That was his assumption going in. And as he's watching this group of competitors that have all become friends because they competitor, compete every year in the nationals and the international competition, uh, they noticed this weird guy in the corner staring at them following them around you know <laughs> never getting too close and they're like who the hell is that guy so they walk up to joshua and they ask him who he is he tells them and he said you know i uh, i think it's amazing that you guys have such superior iqs and you're all members of mensa and things like that and they said um well let us tell you something um we're not any different than you are. We have learned uh, neurological secrets, memory secrets that go all the way back to the ancient Greeks. And that's how we're able to compete in these competitions. And um, we like you. We think you're a pretty cool guy. We're going to teach you how to do it yourself. The following year, Joshua Four entered the competition and won. <laughs> And, and, and what they taught him, one thing that they taught him, this is a great book because it tells a story and it also teaches you to these memory tricks at the same time. Um, and I'm telling this story because, you know, just like the mirror neuron thing, I mean, maybe these are uh, things that can be perpetuated to sort of train people to um, be more in command of their brain. So... What they taught him was that the ancient Greeks, before like the 5th century BC, everything was committed to memory. The best thing that could be said about you was Mac has a superior memory. 
That was the greatest compliment you could be paid. And there were Greeks who knew the names of every soldier in the Roman army. Um, all of the senators, you know, plays, speeches, all of it was committed to memory. They would create something in their mind called a memory palace. And they found that the brain is um, disposed in two ways. It remembers routes through space, navigation. So you can close your eyes and you can picture walking through your house right now. You know, you're opening the front door, you know what's on the left, you know what's on the right, how many steps it is to the kitchen, the living room, what's in those places. You can recall all of that right now very easily. You, you can think about the drive to the grocery store and back. The second thing that the brain does very well is it remembers anything shocking, salacious, funny, um, outrageous, ridiculous, so the Greeks would create a memory palace as an example. You want to remember a grocery list. You place it in your memory palace. You know, you walk through your front door and there's a chair. There's an Ethan Allen chair on the right. And on that chair is a bottle of milk. And two steps uh, past that, there's a rug on the floor. And on the floor is a loaf of bread. And if the loaf of bread has a handlebar mustache, you know, that's something that's crazy. So... Anytime they wanted to remember something, they would walk through their memory palace and all these things would come back to them. And the memory palace can be anything. It can be a car, car collection if you're into, into antique cars. It could be different types of sailboats. It could be celebrities. Anything that you find, um, you know, titillating, shocking, anything that catches your attention. So I told my sister about this book while we were going to a place called the Tiki Bar in Solomon's Island. Yeah, we were and we were going to meet uh, a bunch of her executive co-workers from a company um, called Booz Allen. And there were about eight people at this table. We were going to drink uh, Mai Tais with them and hang out. And she knew that I was terrible with names. So when we went there. As we walked up, I finished telling her about the book. Every person was introduced to me, and I immediately put them in a memory palace, and I used celebrities. So the first guy I met was named Tom Easy. That's Tom Cruise. And the second guy was uh, Dave. And I said, oh, you're a character called Super Dave Osborne that I remember as a kid. And I went around, and I, you know, each when they told me their first name, I turned them into an actor because that was something that I, you know, I like to watch a lot of movies. And at the end of the night, uh, when we called a cab after, you know, half a dozen Mai Tais each, I got up from the table and I went back around the table and I said, Tom, Dave, Bill, Henry, Joe, Mary, uh, Alan, Rick, great to meet you folks. And we walked away. We got about 20 yards away. My sister told me, turned to me and said, I want that damn book. <laughs> <laughs> Especially after half a dozen my ties, for God's sake. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, that's my ties. I think I probably had three. They're very strong. She couldn't believe it. I remembered everybody's name. And it was because I used that memory palace technique. So, you know, what's the point of this? long story that I told you and that I guess it's that you are not your brain. You are the user of your brain. You're the owner of your brain. So if you think of it like, um, like, you know, something that like a computer in your head or a faithful dog or something that you own and command, and then you can, and you learn intimately learn about it. It's blind spots and it's mirrors um, it's biases and pitfalls. And then, you know, maybe we can get command of it because I think we really are, we spend most of our waking day in the sub, in the subconscious drawing from the subconscious world and not consciously being aware. The mind is a wonderful servant and a terrible master, right? Yeah. Einstein said that. Yeah. And we, and we live in a world that um, that we live in a world that um, honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. Spot on, brother. 
it is now time for final jeopardy. Okay. <laughs> all right. That's why I asked you about your kids. Oh, all right. So somewhere down the line, <clears throat> your grandchildren. Okay. Do, do you currently have grandchildren? No, no. Well, let's say that something happens and now you do. Okay. Wonderful. So they're at the, the perfect age, like five and six. Uh, old enough to be able to grasp some a fair amount of complexity, but still childlike. And they come home from school and they talk to their parents who are your kids. And they say, our teacher's been telling us about the year 2020, which we hear was really scary and was really hard and a whole bunch of stuff happened. It was, and, and they come home to their parents, your kids, and let's say that they call you grandpa. And they ask their parents, how did grandpa handle 2020? What would you like your kids to tell them? Oh, my gosh. So they're, who are they asking this of? Their parents who are your kids. Oh, okay. Okay. So my grandkids are asking my kids. How you handled 2020. <laughs> um, I think my son would probably say, well, uh, grandpa rolled with it. He, he handled it with poise and grace and, uh, uh, humor. You know, I would hope that they would say that, um, they certainly wouldn't say, you know, he moved to North Dakota and built a bunker and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it was knowing my son, I think my son would say that uh, grandpa, you know, rolled the dice and played a little fast and loose and, and won, won, it, won, you know, beat the house. Nobody beats the house. Nobody. <laughs> You're right. In the end. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. What a pleasure. Um, you have you have neither neither seen nor heard the last of me, and I hope that's likewise. I'm sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I can't wait to talk to you again, Mac. We shall, we shall. So have a have a splendid weekend. Okay. Um, keep on doing what you're doing. I think I think we're onto something that's important, and that we just keep, you know, if we just keep showing up as we are in in what we're doing now we have an impact everybody we meet in the supermarket and everybody that we talk to and the person who lives down the street who we haven't met yet. And we get a chance. We get a chance to connect. Yeah. I would really like to find a way to collaborate with you and work yeah. and do something um, together that, you know, that goes, along these lines um you know yeah find out because you know like 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 jack canfield said when he was talking about writing chicken soup for the soul book that sold you know millions and billions of copies not it you know the point would not be to um to to do that but what he said was when you um when you produce something create something or or offer something that helps humanity the the universe the the tumblers on the lock the bicycle lock align and the lock opens and, and um you know you know you've got something when you offer something of value so i think we're in the i think we're in the the region um of finding that value that can help humanity or contribute our little piece. So I want to keep talking. Yeah. And that's the perfect ending point. Thank you for that. Thank you for, uh, for bringing it all together. That was very cool. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah. Thanks for, 
having me on today. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Um, I can't wait to get back to your book. And yeah, 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 me too. I'm, I'm having a conversation with your book. I'm writing, writing in the margins and I'm starring and highlighting things and, um, cool. Yeah. So I, so I know that, uh, I'm going to find some more cool stuff in there to talk about. Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.